Hello, friends, and welcome to Coffee and Beer Show. Appreciate you listening in with us today. Our guest is going to be Matt Ross. He is a colleague here at the National Beer Association. He's our Director of Conservation. We're going to talk a little bit about his long history with the organization, as well as a little more detail about some of our forestry initiatives and things that we're doing on the ground to help deer and hunters. So looking forward to having Matt on the show today. Doctors in the house. Mike, good to see you. Nice to feel some warm air on our skin here lately. Yeah, it is. We've actually uh, both shared stories that we've heard peepers, which is, I don't know about just strictly to Pennsylvania, but I think in the eastern part of the country, they're a small little frog that grows up in wetlands. And when you hear them in the springtime, you know that winter is pretty much on its way out. Yeah, after that last bit of snow that got dumped on us, uh, it was nice uh, because I went away on a, on a trip, which I'll, t- I'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, and came home and it was all gone and it was, it was nice. So, uh, you know, we, we love fall. Fall is always my favorite, but spring is not a, uh, not a bad second either. So definitely hearing the spring peepers and getting excited about other things that we can do in the spring and the outdoors. So absolutely. I want to mention our sponsor today is Banks Outdoors. Uh, Banks Outdoors is a partner level Uh, contributor to the National Deer Association. And this is timely because just this morning we announced our Banks Blind Sweepstakes. And so here's how it works. And I want to give you an opportunity to jump in on this early. So uh, we're going to have one grand prize winner. And that winner is going to be selected to win a Banks Stump 2 blind, which is awesome. Their blinds are incredible. They're too easy to fall asleep in, to be honest with you, Um, the few that I've sat in. So they're extremely comfortable. And in addition to this blind, you are also going to get a Vanguard 6.5 Creedmoor rifle. That's a Weatherby Vanguard 6.5 Creedmoor, which is pretty awesome. That's a heck of a nice gun. And on top of that, we are going to give away two additional prizes. And so two additional winners will be selected and they'll win a one Onyx Hunt Elite membership. We've talked a lot about our friends at Onyx uh, here on the show. And also one $200 gift card from Lacrosse Footwear, which is going to allow you to get uh, just about any boot uh, that you want from lacrosse to hunt in. And I, I exclusively have lacrosse hunting boots and I love them. So yeah, I mean, this is, this is a great sweepstakes. It's one that it's another one that I wish that uh, I was allowed to enter. I'm not allowed to enter, uh, as, as an NDA employee, that's just the way it goes sometimes, but you certainly can, if you're listening to this. So please go to, uh, and enter to win. And just so you know, this doesn't run very long. So this is only going to run nine days until March 29th. So again, take advantage of that. Um, Mike, have you ever sat in a Banks blind? I have not had the pleasure. Well, that's exactly what it is, is a pleasure. And I can tell you where I get my, uh, get my side-by-side service also sells Banks blinds. And so while I'm waiting, I had to get my 25 hour service here. Not too long ago, I spent time hanging out in the blinds and, uh, 
they are very nice. And so uh, if anybody listening to this hasn't sat in one yet and you get an opportunity, do it. Um, they're, they're definitely pretty sweet. A little bit too comfortable, as I said. Uh, so anyway, take advantage of the sweepstakes and I hope you win. Love to have you win. This is a Ask NDA Anything week, Mike. And so we had a, we had a question come in and that question is about fawns. And instead of you and I answering this, I thought what we would do is we would change it up a little bit and bring in Mr. Kip Adams, our chief conservation officer to answer the question. So here we go. Kip, I appreciate you joining us here today to answer our Ask NDA Anything question. And I'm just gonna go ahead and read it to you exactly as it was sent to us. And this comes from Jason from Tennessee. And he has fawns on his mind and does, which going into spring, that makes a lot of sense. And here's his question. He says, I would love to know more about does and their fawning process. I've seen very little about a does life and how she goes through from fawn birth to raising the fawns. I've noticed a, uh, noticed the group of does that I have behind my house. They start in a large group in the fall, then they break up for breeding. And then I see them back together around late December. During fawning season, I see them break up and it seems like it can be weeks to a month or even longer that the does show up with the fawn. So yeah, very complex situation out there with does and fawns and you're just the right guy to answer that question, Kip. So take it away. Oh, very good. And uh, that is a great question. So, uh, so what happens is when a doe is getting ready to have her fawns, she will drive all other deer away from her. And, and that is actually the only time of the year that deer are truly territorial. Some people consider bucks territorial, but they're not. But does absolutely are when they're getting ready to have their next fawns. So if it's a doe that had, still had fawns with her from the year before, she will drive them out as well and not allow other deer to be around her. And the, the most dominant doe in an area will get the best fawning area. The next dominant gets the next best, highest quality area and so forth down the line. And that's why it's important for us as managers to make sure we have good fawning cover spread throughout a property so that uh, the majority of does can take advantage of that. So uh, she drives those fawns away. She gets ready to give birth. Uh, if it's a first time mother, um, either a deer that was bred as a fawn or a one and a half year old, they typically just have one fawn that first time. Um, after that, they typically will have two fawns. Uh, triplets are, are pretty rare, but as long as they're uh, nutritionally fit, they often will have two fawns. Um, they have those, and then fawns are not odorless, like, like many people think. They have their own odor, but they have a lot less odor than their mother does. So once she has them, she will clean them up, uh, will nurse them, and then she sends them off to hide by themselves. She, uh, she does not hide with them because that way she's not attracting <clears throat> predators to them. She has a lot more scent than they do, so uh, she doesn't want to, you know, to give them any negative uh, or an opportunity for other predators to, to find them. So she'll send them out. They will bed, <clears throat> and then three to four times a day, she will go to that general area, will call to them, the fawn or fawns, if she has two, will get up, come to her, she will nurse them, she will clean them all up, send them back out to bed, and, uh, and for the first, uh, usually the first month of life, they will not bed together. Uh, so, but she kind of patrols that area and doesn't want other deer in there. So what Jason was asking about, geez, you know, I kind of see them spread out and they're not together. That, that's exactly why. And then when those fawns are get a little bit older, 
they will start uh, traveling more with her. And then uh, after a couple of months, she'll start allowing other deer to get back around there again. And they kind of group back up. And uh, in the fall, any doe group that we see, that can contain, you know, grandmothers, mothers, aunts, you know, sisters, or, you know, a whole family group like that. So that's why we see them grouped up like that in the fall, not at all in the spring. So it's purely a, a survival mechanism uh, on behalf of the doe. And uh, they are really, really good at it. So uh, great question by Jason. Well, and that's a great answer, Kip. And I know for myself coming into turkey season in particular, uh, I've certainly come across fawns during turkey season. It's a great time to do it. But I've also had these scenarios where I'd come across an adult doe and she just doesn't seem to really want to leave the area, not like in a normal situation. So uh, in those situations, Kip, would it be advisable to just sort of keep your eyes to the ground because there's a chance that there might be a fawn nearby? There certainly could be, and then if she's hanging out in an area and doesn't want to leave, there's a, there's a real good chance there's one right there somewhere. And, uh, you know, for somebody, particularly a hunter uh, that may want to mentor uh, a, a child or, uh, you know, a new hunter and show them something really cool about, uh, about deer, um, once fawns are hitting the ground, you know, that early summer part, you can go out and, and get near any hedgerow or any cover where you think a fawn may be, you can blow a, a fawn bleat call or just bleat with your mouth. And if there's a fawn near there, its mother is likely nearby. Um, she will come running. And uh, I've done this with my kids when they were little, and they had a blast to see deer literally come running, you know, to that sound thinking, you know, something has gone wrong. And uh, they're there to try to help defend their fawn. So, uh, um, you know, you don't want to mess with the fawn. Once you see the mother, you know, it's a great uh, viewing experience, you know, then you can leave the area. You're, you're not harming anything, but uh, it's a pretty cool behavioral uh, trait to see and something that can be a tremendous amount of fun for a new uh, deer enthusiast. All right. So a little bonus information there directly from our chief conservation officer, Kip Adams. Kip, thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. You guys have a great day. And talking about does and fawns, Mike, I, and you know, it's spring, it's turkey season, going to be here. So actually, I've already seen people shooting turkeys in Florida and some other places. So uh, turkey seasons have started. And I remember that time you and I came across that fawn uh, that one morning. That was pretty awesome, wasn't it? It was. It was a very unique situation. It was a sunny day and the sun was just hitting that fawn's dappled coat. It blended in so well. It was the only reason I think we saw it is because we almost stepped on it. That seems to happen a fair amount. And I, I would say maybe a hundred percent of the fawns that I've ever encountered were during Turkey season. And so you, you get to that mid May timeframe. I'm always just kind of looking at my feet because that's, that's what happens. You just kind of stumble upon them. Fawns and sheds. Yeah. Fawns and sheds. That's another thing too. Can't, can't tell you how many times I've been sitting there trying to call a turkey and I'm looking out onto the forest floor and I see an antler shed laying there but uh, I don't know how many sheds I've found but I know I've seen I've come across a few fawns over the years do you have any idea how many fawns you've come across over turkey seasons um it's it's not many above 10 but um surprisingly I've had some good luck in June uh just out scouting, wandering around, doing, you know, some work. There was one time that I actually had uh, a 35 millimeter camera with me and I had a, a doe run across the trail and I saw the fawn dart backwards and, and lay down. So I stayed away from it, but um, 
the mother started to bleat after I sat quietly in about 10, 15 minutes later, the mom came back, she started to bleat to the fawn, but then the mother saw me and then ran off again. So I just started mimicking that sound. And if that fawn didn't come up within one yard of me, walked right up to my feet, um, making this little mewing sound. It was the, one of the most, uh, one of my most memorable moments ever out in the deer woods. Yeah. And that goes hand in hand with Kip's answer. Uh, yeah. What the sort of the add on bonus information as he was talking about uh, those and young fawns and how they respond to each mm -hmm. other. So definitely some cool stuff uh, for sure. Uh, speaking of cameras too, and you brought up something too, I want to mention to folks uh, that's one of the upsides of always having a phone with you nowadays is that you have that built-in camera. But if you get an opportunity to snap a picture at a fawn, number one, don't be afraid to do it. You're not going to hurt anything. Uh, but th the other thing is get the first picture quickly and then worry about trying to get glamour shots because I had one, I it might've just been last spring or maybe the spring before where I came up on one and I was lucky enough to snap an initial picture, but then as I tried to get closer to snap some more, that sucker jumped up and took off. So uh, they're, sometimes they're a little more spry than what they might look. All right, with that, let's go ahead and bring in our guest, Matt Ross, hear a little bit about his time with the NDA and some of our uh, really cool forestry and conservation initiatives that we're working on right now. like to bring Matt Ross into the show today. He is our director of conservation. He leads a number of our conservation programs, which we're going to talk about here in a second, but some of those include our deer steward program, our co-ops, our forestry initiatives, uh, which we're going to talk about in detail here today, uh, including land certification program. He also, you know, Matt's one of these guys that we draw on to do a bunch of things outside of uh, his regular work, which I think that's kind of common here at the, at the NDA, but he also just finished leading or was the chairperson for the Southeast Deer Study Group meeting, which we hosted. So Matt has done that two years in a row, something he probably never thought he'd even do one time, thanks to COVID. And also Matt is someone who's been around the NDA for a while. So you have certainly seen his articles, seen his videos. Uh, he writes in Quality Whitetails Magazine. He's been doing that for a, a long time. A lot of the articles that we put out in our newsletter. He's one of the people that participates in the Age This, this uh, um, uh, work that we do, which is really popular. And uh, also down to the point of taking notes at board meetings because he is so detail-oriented. And we just had a board meeting last night that we survived, which is great. And I know you were taking lots of notes, Matt, but thanks for coming on the show. And I'll shut up now and let you tell us a little bit about you. I think you're on mute, Matt. How's that? Good. Yeah, thanks. I uh, I I didn't know if I'd ever be invited on this show, so I'm 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 excited to be here and talk about what we what we do in the conservation department. Uh, uh, no, just joking aside. I appreciate the opportunity to talk talk about what our staff does. Um, a little bit about me, I guess, to to start off. I have been here for a while. Uh, going back, this will be uh, this spring, sixteen years at, at uh, formerly QDMA and now the National Deer Association. Um, so lo long haul uh, here at the organization. I've served in a variety of roles. Had had a couple different titles over the years. 
uh, but today I'm the director of conservation. I really started uh, at, from the employee standpoint. Before that, I was a volunteer. I uh, I got out of graduate school, um, and and I've told this story a few times over the years. But at the time that I finished uh, school, I went to to school for wildlife and forestry, a bachelor's and a master's. And when I was getting my my graduate degree. Um, the funding for that project came from the state agency um, primarily. So that I was living in New Hampshire, went to, to University of New Hampshire. And at the time, uh, Kip Adams, who's our chief conservation officer, was uh, the deer and bear uh, project leader for the state of New Hampshire. So I met Kip because he was on my advisory committee. They were giving funding to the, to the school for us to do this project. And uh, he was on my committee because he wanted to make sure the money was well, well spent. And somewhere in the midstream of my graduate work, Kip left for this uh, new job that he was hired for with the QDMA. And uh, when I heard about that, that's when I heard about the organization. That was in late 90s. And uh, I, I hadn't heard of the organization, started uh, a branch up there. A branch is still going, believe it or not. Uh, I was the vice president for a period of time, but I started as a volunteer, did that for years while I, once I got out of graduate school, I uh, worked in the wildlife and forestry consulting business um, for a company that was based out of Southern New England, uh, working, doing management plans for private landowners, townships, um, do, prescribing forestry treatments and wildlife improvements, and did that for uh, several years until uh, I, a job opened up. At, uh, at the time, QDMA, and uh, I enjoyed the dirt forestry stuff, and I, I miss it today. I mean, I, I've written about this too. Really love those years of just me and my chocolate lab out in the woods every day. Um, but I knew from a communication standpoint, I knew I could do more. I wanted to do more. I wanted to impact more than just that region. And so applied for a job, and here, 16 years later, uh, I've moved up through the organization and uh, love every day. Love the job. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't do it otherwise, right? But they'd say you got to love what you do, and I really I really do. Well, I don't even know if I can say I love every day. I think I love most of the days, but <laughs> that must be that opto. I was going to ask you. Uh, so you you mentioned about running into Kip before you guys worked together here. Was he always as optimistic as he is now? Oh yeah, <laughs> he's he's always been that optimistic. Yeah, he's definitely the most, I think, optimistic on the staff, which is good. We need that. It's infectious. Um, it's hard to it's hard to not get influenced by it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's actually he's quite the salesperson uh, with his with his yeah. optimism. And he talks me into things, I think, on occasion. But uh, and, and as far as getting on the show and getting invited, I mean, it's a high bar to get on the show. We haven't invited Kip, for example. We're talking about him. So he has not uh, he's not met our expectations yet. Maybe someday if he works a little bit harder. That's what I'm talking about. I, yeah. I beat him at something. Yeah, he'll probably be jealous, you know, seeing this. But uh, maybe someday we'll we'll lower the bar and let him in. But uh, no, I think it's you know, Matt, you're one of the people that all the way back when I first heard of QDMA, um, I think I I think I was aware and a member before you came along, but it was shortly thereafter you came on, and you're one of the people. We have a number of sort of visible personalities here that have been around a while and you're one of them. So you're one of those people that when people think of QDMA or now the NDA, I think you're one of the people they think of. That's cool. I mean, I, and I, I believe there's 
truth to that. I want to believe there's truth to that. You know, you want to leave a legacy with anything, especially with family, you know, your kids and kind of leaving something. But uh, I love deer, love deer hunting, um, love land management and certainly work hard at, at my job just because it's great to, to hear those stories from people um, that we can influence what they do at a, at a local level. So it's great. I appreciate that. Now, did you grow up in New York and as a deer hunter? I did. Um, I, so I live in New York, as you just mentioned. Um, I grew up on the east side of the state, uh, upstate New York, as we, we, we say. So I live outside of uh, Saratoga now, um, but grew up a little bit south of here. Uh, grew up deer hunting, uh, belonged to a stereotypical rod and gun club. My dad um, was a little bit more of an upland bird hunter, but he deer hunted. Uh, and introduced myself and my brothers to hunting. I was the only one that took to it and took to it pretty hard, obviously. Um, my brothers appreciate hunting and appreciate the meat, but um, both of them went, went a little bit different direction. They don't hunt, but I, I did. And every, every weekend uh, I could get to get out, I'd, I'd beg my dad or once I could start driving, I would, I would go out. And uh, he wasn't a bow hunter, uh, mostly just firearms. And when I learned about bow hunting and, and took the course, um, it was a family friend that really kind of fanned that flame. And uh, for years, uh, that's what really kind of drew me into not just hunting, but really learning about deer, learning about what they do. It was definitely bow hunting. So grew up hunting as part of a rod and gun club. I actually went back and visited that club a few uh, well, about three, four years ago, uh, I hadn't been there in a long time. And, uh, it was, it was so nostalgic walking in. It, it was, it was really awesome. Uh, and see, and seeing some of the guys that were there. I mean, I, at this point I live a couple hours away and do most of my hunting here locally, but, um, very much tied to, to my growing up was, was being around that scene for sure. Well, there are a couple, couple times on this show where I just, shut up and step out of the way and let the doctor talk. And one of those is when somebody brings up a bird dog and the other is when somebody says they're from New York. So Mike, you know, if you, do you want me to just step away and let you two do your thing for a second? <laughs> um, I really don't think so. I mean, uh, you know, Matt and I, we do share that commonality of being uh, native New Yorkers. And I, I started to laugh when Matt said upstate New York. And just for the listeners out there, I wanted to find that if you're from New York Upstate New York is anything above New York City. Is yep. if you if you're from if you're from New York City. So um, that's why we it's kind of a uh, a joke for New Yorkers. But uh, yeah, upstate New York is anything above New York City. So uh, I was way upstate. I was actually born in Watertown, New York. You know, right on uh, Lake Ontario, St. Lawrence Seaway. But um, yeah, Matt and I uh, we do share that commonality, and it's it's something that gets in you, and, and it's always nice for me to return home because I do own a piece of ground up there, and I always appreciate coming back. That's a that's a gorgeous part of the, the state, up in the Thousand Islands. It's I love that part of New York, but it's yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty big chunk of uh, real estate that we call upstate, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I mean, if you yeah. think about it, it runs from from Buffalo to you know, Augsburg, Messina Potsdam, way up north, you know, down toward your area, like the Mohawk Valley, Adirondacks, you know, Finger Lakes region. That's all upstate. Yep. I'm surprised in Illinois, they don't call it downstate Illinois to get away from Chicago. 
maybe we maybe can, they do yeah maybe we can start a trend there if they don't if they don't do that already but uh, all right so we got a good geography lesson on new york uh, which is good. We got a couple of New Yorkers here, uh, but you know, people. I think one of the cool things about New York is it's a gigantic sportsman state. A lot of great things to do there: hunting, fishing, uh, and whatnot. So uh, good to have two New Yorkers represented here on the show today. Hey, I want to get back, Matt, uh, and talk just a little bit more about your history with NDA. So go back to whenever you first applied. And, and look at where you're at now. When you were first applying, did you ever sort of see this journey for yourself or did you think maybe it was a temporary stop? I, I hope the journey was the um, trajectory that ended up happening at that time. I actually applied for one of our regional director positions and that's where I started. Um, and when I, when I interviewed, uh, I, I remember the conversation very specifically. I gave a PowerPoint and, you know, as, as detail oriented as you know me now, like I, I did the full, the full regalia. So it was and, a three uh, hour interview. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I remember having conversations in the interview process about, you know, like, that's not what you're applying for, you know? And I said, I understand that I, I, I'm a volunteer now and I know what our regional director does. Um, my hope is to get indoctrinated into the uh, organization. I can, I can certainly talk the talk on education. And for those listeners that don't know, our volunteers, our branches, they do fundraising events like any other uh, non-governmental organization, but we also task them to do education in their communities and to um, talk about land management, talk about how to improve things. And uh, although I knew a bit about fundraising because my local branch had done banquets and, and done those types of things for several years from the volunteer standpoint. Uh, I said, I could be the one house, you know, stop shop for any branch that wants to do education. I'll go there and talk about forestry. I'll go there and talk about wildlife. And I got the job. Um, but I wanted more than that. I wanted to do more than that. And um, I think it's a testament to the organization to, to keep good people around and uh, um, put people in places that they're most effective. And I know our our colleagues, Nick, at the organization are all really skilled in what they do. And uh, so I may may have forged that path a little bit myself, but it's also a testament to our leadership over the years. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's interesting about NDA is that we have a number of staff here uh, that have been around a long time, definitely double digit years. And you're one of them. There's been a lot of change during that time. But I want to ask you, uh, we could have a whole show talking about changes <laughs> um, and we're, we are, we're, we're a lean organization. So we have 20 people. And as I tell the staff all the time, we have to have 20 excellent people if we're going to operate and do great things with that number of people. And I think we do that, but I want to ask you over that time, what these, I guess it'd be two separate questions. What is one of your most memorable moments over that 16 years? And what are you most proud of? So you can take those in either order. Hmm. Well, one of my most proud of I'll, I'll answer that first uh honestly once i look at the collective accomplishments of the organization um you know i've been here long enough that i've seen some major shifts in the way that uh people hunt deer <laughs> you know and what's what's like what's accepted be not only accepted today but really mainstream like nationally um on the flip side of that, it 
it can be a little bit frustrating knowing that we don't get the credit, but that's not why we do it. But the organization has changed the conversation. And really that's, that goes back to our founder and, and the, the ethics and the, uh, the principles of what we do. But the thing I'm most proud of is just watching today how people hunt deer, how they're interested in what, what deer do um, and wanting to improve it. That, that's, a, that's a monumental cultural shift that the organization that I've been a part of is, is responsible for. And I know that we are. Um, we drive the conversation in popular media, um, you know, people, what they're talking about, just watching, uh, you know, talking about New York, Mike, um, the main New York publications up here that people get. It's a, it's a paper publication for outdoorsmen and women. Um, just watching the advertisements in that change over the years to being things that are related to land management 10 years, 15 years ago, that was not the case. So I'm incredibly proud of what we've done as a staff and as an organization. And really as our membership base, I know it's more than just our staff. Um, being a volunteer, and I'm a volunteer today. I know you guys are too. You know, I, I, we have a local branch that I volunteer at. Um, we hold we hold events. Um, so it's it's the collective of all of that. Um, so that's what I'm most proud of seeing that and being part of it. Um, what's the most memorable part of my f- 16 years of being here? Um, th- there are some there are some of our bigger gatherings. Uh, that like our conventions and things like that, that stand out. But honestly, the thing that probably stands out the most is uh, moments from some of our dear steward courses. When we get together in person, I've been to like 50 of them. I mean, honestly, I don't know how many over the past 15 years, we hold several of them a year and uh, one in Pennsylvania in particular that stands out uh, going way back. Uh, we did one in, in uh, near Erie, Pennsylvania, at a family f- uh, farm, uh, the, the Bastows is their last name, that hosted a, a deer steward course. Um, Nick, you were there, I believe, weren't you? Well, I was going to say, I was going to let you finish, but say, yeah, that is where I did my deer steward too. And I was yeah. at that. And matter of fact, as I'm sitting in my office, I can see my certificate on the wall from completing that course, which you'd mentioned Joe Hamilton, our founder. Uh, I had him sign that for me as well. So yeah, I was there. This is not a setup. I actually realized as I was starting to say it, that you were there once I was, once I was looking at your eyes, but um, we had like a campfire at that. That was just amazing. People talked about what it meant to them to be there and what the organization meant to them. Um, that, that stands out as probably one of the most uh, memorable experiences. And honestly, fast forwarding to, uh, this past fall, I'll, I'll do another uh, event that I was at that I told you afterwards, we, we hosted an event with the Nature Conservancy, uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, the New York DEC, and a group called Hunters of Color, where we did one of our Field of Fork events over several days and took out eight new hunters um, from uh, the Black, Indigenous, and People of Color community. That was another one that stand out that I left that event and said, I've never been part of something like that. So those are two moments, pretty different. One was teaching a bunch of people how to manage land. Um, and the other one was teaching people how to hunt, but both of them had something to do with the camaraderie and the community and kind of the connection of talking with others. 
and just feeling super connected to the people that were at the other event. And that's really what it comes down to is what hunting is about, right? I mean, people from the outside that don't hunt don't know all, all of what we are drawn to it, but a lot of it is just being connected to other people. And those two events are, are memorable for me for those reasons. Yeah, those are great examples. And I was going to mention too, uh, Field to Fork, because we had a really memorable moment also, another Field to Fork, the one we did, you and I were there in Missouri, and you were uh, Kathleen Saviano, a previous guest on the Coffee and Deer show. Uh, you were her mentor and did a great job with her and made it just a wonderful experience. And me as an observer, I thought that was that was outstanding too. And yeah, I'm going all the way back to that event we did at the at the Bastow farm and I can tell you as I was sitting there I had no idea I'd be sitting here right now so it's just <laughs> funny how think how those things come around but uh, yeah that was certainly a great event um let's go ahead actually before we do this I want to get into our forestry work but I want to ask you this too because I mentioned at the beginning that we once again hosted the southeast deer study group meeting and for some of our listeners they may not even understand what that is or why that's an important meeting and so just real quick, what is the Southeast Deer Study Group? Why is it important and why it was an honor for us to host that? Sure. Uh, yeah, there's a regional conference that's been going on for 40 plus years, a 45th um, anniversary of the conference. Um, for those um, that don't know, uh, every state is managed by the state wildlife agency um, for, for deer hunting and the three major regions um, have get-togethers, meetings, or conferences. And the Southeast Deer Study Group meeting, um, there's one in the Midwest, there's one in the Northeast, um, but those are more smaller affairs. Uh, the Southeast meeting has become incredibly an iconic and important conference uh, from the longevity, but also it's the place for new deer research to be presented coming out of the, the colleges and universities across the country. So although it's got this regional name, and it's guided by the Southeast agencies, um, which, is, which is a bigger footprint than you would imagine. It goes all the way up to Maryland. Um, anybody that's going through graduate school uh, that's studying deer, masters, PhD students, um, particularly from the Southeast, but a lot of them come from other regions of the country, um, really this is where they unveil their research. And it's a, a, an important event for that reason because all that we've learned about deer, um, a lot of it's done through research and science. We're a science-based organization. And the first look at this, these findings is, oh, has always been this, this conference. And so this conference has been on you know, four decades. Every year, a different state agency hosts it in person. Uh, they take turns. And going into uh, the last state to host it was in Alabama in 2019. Um, or 2020, and uh, going into the 2021 year, it was supposed to be held by a hosted by a new state. And as the world knows, COVID hit, and no in-person gatherings were happening. And that event looked like it was about to be postponed or or canceled. Um, and with no real uh, plan on how to get this research in front of folks, it would have been a real shame um, because. These students, you know, they give two or four years of their time to, to, to these projects. And beyond that, the greater knowledge of deer, I mean, we would have learned about it, but there still wouldn't have been this pinnacle affair or event to, to unveil it all. And uh, 
we did, I mean, we would have volunteered, but we were asked, Hey, would, you know, from we, we've served on this committee, the NDA has been a member of this dear committee that, that hosts this meeting, but we've never hosted it just because we're not a state agency. And in 2021, uh, that event uh, was held virtually for the first time and we were the host and we, we hosted it uh, through an online portal, um, had record attendance as you would imagine because it was held virtually. People didn't have to travel. We were all kind of locked down anyway at that time still and uh, had uh, an amazing experience and we're, we didn't skip a beat and we were able to, to let people hear about this research. And so uh, we, we hit rewind or repeat, I guess, on this year and it was supposed to be hosted again and the state uh, that was going to host it was still under um, ordinances of not being able to do things in person in that state. So uh, we were asked again and we were proudly and very honored to do it and we hosted it again. So uh, very much looking forward to attending it in person and not being the, the, the chairman that was planning it. There was a lot of, a, not just on me, uh, on our entire staff and not just the conservation department, really it touched all departments to host an event like this virtual or not, it was still a, a, a pretty, pretty big time drain. Uh, but we want to be the source of information for hunters and landowners and managers and biologists. Um, so not only are we proud and honored to do it, we felt like we were a great, uh, a great conduit of that information, regardless if it was virtual or not. And so it's part of our mission. I mean, we know that it's part of our strategic plan. And uh, we gave it all our, our all. And man, there's some great research coming out. Um, we're, you know, honestly, we're about to travel in a week or so to one of our, our dear steward courses we were mentioning. And uh, every year we update those presentations with the latest data. And there was a ton of research that came out this year that I'm updating slides, contacting researchers. Um, our magazine, the next issue, I've seen it. Uh, a, a copy of it that'll start hitting mailboxes in a couple of weeks is going to have a ton of, of information from that, from that conference in it. Um, but from your perspective, Nick, um, I'd like to hear, uh, you know, your view and our staff hosting and how we did, but mostly the theme this year, uh, I think was pretty pertinent to like the bigger picture of deer and deer hunting and what people view deer as. You see what he did there, Mike? He just turned it around and asked me a question. Well, that's okay. What I'm going to do is I'm going to step in and let you think about that answer because um, what Matt's saying is actually very important. And to the listeners out there, I will have to say as someone that actually likes research and being from the medical field, we actually have medical journals that we can access via our libraries, um, online portals like Google Scholar. But the one thing is that... Um, Matt, if you can speak to this type of research that comes out of uh, big, you know, wildlife management and forestry type universities, are, are those types of like peer reviewed journals uh, like really available or accessible? Because to me, it doesn't seem like they really come across my computer screen very often. But what I do notice is that when I see some of the topics of the Southeast Regional uh, Conference, a lot of the stuff you know, by virtue and I would say by good fortune is filtered through whether it be either QDMA or NDA through their quality whitetails, your website, and as you're mentioning into the deer steward program. So can you talk to people about where they can get, I mean, I know we just touched on that, but I mean, if we can, if you can kind of just really clarify where they can get some of this nuts and bolts, like um, Sentinel research information, other than 
through NDA and uh, those types of outlets? Sure. Uh, uh, there's, there's a couple places you can get this research. It's, I will say before that though, you know, reading peer reviewed literature, um, is not for the faint of heart. It's not easy to read an abstract and, and get the synopsis, uh, of what, you know, what's the action item, what's it mean to me? Um, and to give major props to our communications department and our conservation team too, who are authors of a lot of this stuff, um, but the communications department through this, the avenues you just mentioned, Mike, we take that information and on a, on a literally weekly basis in our e-newsletter and then in the hard magazine, the hard print magazine and, and, and videos on YouTube and all the different avenues, we make it our job to just uh, synthesize that and give the, the take-home message as quickly and as efficiently as possible so people don't have to wade through the uh, all of the statistics and what's statistically significant and all of the um, gobbledygook in there that you and I probably love, uh, but not, not the average person. They don't want to read through that stuff. But if you did, um, there's a couple places that are really accessible uh, to want to do that. Um, one of the main thoughts that I, I think that you could go to is the Southeast Deer Study Group uh, webpage. There actually is a website that houses um, not only a PDF copy of the proceedings from every conference going back a couple decades, but there's an abstract search uh, on there. It's a tool that you can type in keywords. If you want to know something about buck movements or food plots, type those words in and you can read just simply the abstracts and who the authors are um, if, if somebody wants to do that. Um, but I would, uh, I'd recommend if you don't want to wade through all the, that, just maintain your your open uh, communication with our organization. Get as much as we deliver in all, as many forms as you feel like you want to, because we do. I mean, I, the next issue of the magazine, uh, Lindsay Thomas Jr., our, our chief communications officer, has already taken all of the studies presented at the conference and boiled it down into an article with kind of like by the numbers, like what's the stuff that you need to know? Um, so if you're not a member, join, you'll get that magazine and uh, you'll be able to read it all in a, probably a thousand words, uh, everything over two days of research. And, and that's the reason I brought it up. And I know that reading, reading actual research papers is and can be very tedious, but I want to throw that out there for parents or if we have any high school age listeners that are listening. I know that a lot of younger individuals that are interested in this, we have actually two young ladies in our, uh, our actually grassroots uh, West Central District um, organization, and they're very into wildlife. And I just want to make sure that these younger people are continued to be encouraged and have access to some of these other than um, like through the end day, like where they can go and maybe write a paper in high school because they're really interested in this kind of thing, because these are journals and, and locations where you, it's really tough to find in a high school library. So I just want to throw that out there so that I can, you know, I always try and encourage people to, to push themselves. If they're really interested in this, this could spark someone that could be sitting, you know, where you're sitting or where Nick's sitting in the next 20 years. So that's, that's kind of my purpose behind that thought process. And we have, we, ha, uh, we do uh, merge all of the research into different avenues. And as you mentioned, one of the things was our Dear Steward courses. Um, we have online courses that people can take. They're videoed. 
uh, that we present as much research as we can in, a, in an hour, one of them's 15 hours long, uh, and just watch data for, for all that time. And, but in, in, a, in a filter of why is it important to you? To answer your question, Matt, yeah, I, I was really pleased with how those turned out. Uh, it was obviously an honor for us to to lead the last two years of that event. Now we'll be happy to give it back to Louisiana next year and just show up and be part of it. But you know, the the theme this year was the value of deer, and that is something as an organization from the NBA you're going to be seeing a lot more from us on because uh, hunters believe it or not, I think mostly are unaware of the true value of deer to conservation. So you're going to hear that, but also people that don't hunt that we need to care about deer and they need to understand why deer matter. And that was the theme of the conference here this year was exciting, but uh, yeah, but in terms of the history of that, uh, we've had employees that have presented there uh, that became employees later that may have been students. I've presented there uh, a couple of times, which was cool and an honor for me to do that. Um, Matt, you've probably presented there, uh, over the years as well. Uh, Kip, yeah, Kip has, uh, and others. And so it's just been a, a great venue for us and being a science-based organization and being called upon to lead that event is a big deal for us. So, uh, Hey, let's go ahead and switch gears. And I want to dig into a little more specifically about our forestry initiatives, uh, you being a forester, talking about your on-the-ground days of forestry work and how you kind of miss that. And so you're getting a chance here now with, with some of our shift and in initiative to, to get back to those roots. So why don't you tell us a little bit about some of our large-scale forestry work that we're doing? Sure, yeah. I, I have really enjoyed it, this project that we, we started or this initiative. Um, recently, um, we announced a national initiative called Improving Access habitat and deer hunting on public lands. And so it's a multi-year initiative and primarily the, the avenue in which we are going, and it has a goal, a pretty, a pretty big goal of improving a million acres by 2026 on public lands. Uh, primarily we're doing this through the U.S. Forest Service. Uh, the Forest Service has a category of projects where they will partner uh, with groups uh, called stewardship agreements. That's really the, the main avenue in how we're doing this. Um, Forest Service owns millions and millions of acres across the country, um, various states, various regions. And so we signed a, uh, a master stewardship agreement with the Forest Service. It's a, it's a long contract. Um, it's actually 10 years, uh, 10 to 20 years contract. So this is not something we're doing uh, with a short-term view or short-term vision. And we are going into a variety of states uh, and the way stewardship agreements work is in places that need or have the need to add capacity to the work that they're doing at the forest service level in different, uh, different uh, national forests and different ranger districts. Um, we can add a capacity surge to what they already do on a daily basis. Now, we know from a, from a forestry standpoint, trees grow pretty slow. Uh, and really, when you're talking about forest management, it is a long-term vision. But on, a, on really on a daily basis, um, there's things that are happening in the forest that can kind of get out of control. Invasive species, uh, wildfires, um, and already in today's day, managing something as large at the, as the forest service system is a complex, uh, is a complex task. 
So the Forest Service has relied more and more on partners to help them increase their capacity and what they can do. And we're not the only uh, non-governmental organization that has tapped into this or, or utilized this, but we're proud to, to be a new partner to the Forest Service. We've had a, a memorandum of understanding, basically a, a document that we signed with the Forest Service 20 plus years ago that say we're going to do good work together, but we've never really uh, verbalized or put that into the ground in a grassroots plan. And that's what these stewardship agreements do. And at the simplest term, uh, really what they are is the Forest Service has work that needs to be done, improvements, improvements to roads, improvements to access, um, improvements to habitat, spraying invasive species, um, converting something uh, because the forest is get, be, getting so old so fast in such a large scale, they need to make it more open and, and convert it to a younger forest or make it more open because there are animals that rely on that. Uh, those things cost money. Those are, those are stewardship activities. Um, the way the stewardship agreements work is the Forest Service contracts with a partner such as us, and we will go in and use subcontractors to cut timber, create revenue from that forest. That revenue goes into a pot that we can't touch other than to spend that money to improve the forest in those other needs. So if they need to spray uh, you know, 2,500 acres of Kogan grass, that's a lot of money. Where's that going to come from? Well, we take the receipts and the money and the revenue that's driven from the timber sale. We, we then apply that to those improvements. Uh, that's pretty simple to say, but when you look at the scale of what the Forest Service owns, it, it's, a, it's a very big task. So using partners such as the National Deer Association and other conservation groups that are in the wildlife space, and actually other conservation groups that are not in the wildlife space, the Forest Service has made it a priority to work with more partners. And that's what we're doing. We're, we're plugging into that um, with our know-how and our expertise and really our relationships uh, that we've developed over the things that we just talked about for the past 30 minutes. Um, we have a lot of, of uh, knowledge and skill that we can apply to that and really, you know, quote unquote, light a fire under some of those initiatives and apply it in a quick way to a lot of land. Um, and we, as an organization, you know, going back my history here with, with uh, the company, um, primarily people think of us as a, as a private lands organization. You know, we do deer steward courses where people come and learn how to improve their property. Um, and most of our members are private landowners, uh, but there's a lot of public land out there. And if we can apply what we do uh, to public lands and improve that for, for new hunters, veteran hunters, or anybody in between, uh, we should do that because it's, it's, it's a priority of ours. It is, and we're glad you're leading it with your expertise, and it's also great that you're kind of getting back to your roots to do that work. And I, as, as Matt was talking, uh, this represents a, a very important piece of our work. As If you look at the NDA as a whole, we've already talked about we're certainly prominent in the science world, uh, number one. Uh, policy. Someday we'll get Torn Miller on the show here to talk about policy, so we also can put on our suit and tie and get on to D.C. or state legislatures and deal with that education. We take the science, we make it understandable, we certify people through our dear steward programs. 
on the ground, the work that Matt's talking about. We're all these places. And I think that's what sets us apart from any other deer organization. I mean, we, we are all these places and we do a lot of it in this on the ground work in particular to me is a piece that uh, I'm very passionate about and I'm glad we're doing it. And as I say, that certainly sets us apart. And Matt, you were leading into really the next thing I wanted to ask you. And that is the average person sitting there listening to this. And I'll bring up a very timely example. And this is kind of a funny one. We just had a board meeting and after the board meeting ended, I was just kind of, uh, lounging around and unwinding and I have a a little golf game that I play on my iPad and uh, I'm sitting there and you can play head to head with people and I'm and the person that I got paired up to play with last night I saw that his profile picture was a deer head and a nice buck so of course I naturally you can chat and I said hey nice buck and it turns out that this person was in Pennsylvania has shot the deer in Illinois and we get into this conversation about deer hunting and NDA and uh, and he said, uh, he said, you know, I wish I had more land to do, or I wish I could do more. I had more land to actually do something with because he just mentioned he had a couple acres. And I thought, you know, that's been one of the challenges for us is e- expressing to people that you don't need, you don't need to own any land to make an impact or do something. So to that person, which I think it's very common, what do we say? Like, what, what can you do if you're, if you're just a person that likes to hunt deer, you care about deer, maybe you don't own land. How can they make a difference out there? Oh, there's a couple different ways they can do it. Um, you know, one of the first thing that jumps to my mind uh, for somebody that does not own land um, and hunts public land, whether that's state or federally owned, uh, is to get involved with being outspoken on what's done on those places. Tell, t- say, be be in places where when the opportunities arise. Uh, to have a voice in what should be done with that, because it is public land. And that exists in both uh, state and federal cases. Like for the Forest Service, a lot of times they can't do uh, any improvements or any projects without it going through a process of, of approvement, stakeholder approvement, an EPA approvement, basically an environmental protective agency, approvement to make sure it's all environmentally sound. But the public can also have a voice in when they release their management plan of that property. You can go to hearings and say, these are the things that we'd like you to to do or say. A lot of times, uh, folks that are not really into hunting show up at those meetings. Um, And that steers conversations. Um, In fact, one of the things that I've seen as a byproduct, a major benefit of a byproduct of us being involved um, for the relationships I've built and starting to build in the Forest Service with the different regions, is when they hold these, they want us, when they hold these, these stakeholder or public hearings, um, the ability for us to notify our membership about going out, speaking, sending an email. So going back to that policy thing you just said, Nick, is be, being involved. Um, so you could do that at the local level. Um, you know, if you hunt a local piece of land, find out what guides the management there and be involved there. You can be involved at, at the NDA by signing up for our action alerts because we make it at a local level when something happens in policy or land management with the state agency. We do, we have a new grassroots action center and we send out emails and say, hey, this new thing is happening. Speak out so you can get involved there. You can get involved in a branch. Um, there will be getting, you know, talking about on the ground. 
there will be opportunities for volunteerism in some of these situations uh, with the Forest Service. Uh, we haven't unveiled that yet, but we will, we will have opportunities uh, in the future where uh, we can put out um, some educational displays and kiosks, kiosks doing actually work on the ground um, to, to, for our volunteers. We'll do that primarily through our branch system. Um, so if you're not part of the NDA uh, volunteer branches, I'd say get one started in your community because we're going to rely on our volunteers to do some of this work. Um, but there are a variety of ways you can get involved uh, and, and have a say in how that land is managed that you hunt on, even though you don't own it. Well said. Well said. I think that's great advice. And so I'm going to ask you, Matt, as we close out our conversation here, if you could look into your crystal ball, what do you see for the future of NDA's forestry initiatives? And uh, so this is your chance to dream here a little bit. Uh, do you see growth in this area? We're going to be able to do more? Absolutely. Um, it is definitely going to grow. And it's, uh, it's kind of at a point right now that I feel like the growth might be um, a pretty significant change for our organization in terms of what our needs might be in terms of staffing. Uh, although there's money in the timber sales that are made, it almost all goes back into those forests. So right now I'm running this project solo. Um, we have fortunately had some pretty big donations to help us support this project to get it kicked off. Um, one was an anonymous donor uh, and one was Bass Pro Shops Outdoor Fund. Um, they were very fortunate to understand uh, the need and uh, had the trust in us as an organization to, to, to kick it off. But I can tell both of you, I mean, I know I'm one of the sole people that have been in these negotiations with the different regions and, and districts of talking about what we are capable of doing. But the, uh, the excitement level from the Forest Service, once they know that we know what we're doing, uh, comes out in the conversation, it's palpable. Like I, I, I can give you an example, even just last week um, in a state where the conversation started, where we were looking at a project, um, it was a recreation, it's a recreational area, needs some improvement for access, um, camping, but also hunting. Um, they're going to cut a little bit of timber. It's in like the long leaf region of the South. Um, so that, that comes with some uh, complexity, uh, particularly with the, uh, how close it is to an urban center. It's a 75 acre parcel. It's not a big deal and it's something we can completely handle. But the conversation for uh, our, our team when we we're having what this was going to do and how we could handle it quickly led the Forest Service to, to saying, hey, you know what, we have something else we want to show you. And they drove us down the road to a 2,700 acre parcel which was not on the plan. It was not on the agenda. And he said, we know what, you know what you're doing. Um, this is something we want. I mean, that was literally in like a 45 minute time frame. It went from a 75 acre to, to 2,700 acre additional parcel. That's happening across the East right now in many States. And uh, from a growth standpoint, it's a little scary, Nick, for, for me, I think we're going to, we're going to need to, to see, this grow and we'll have to have discussions in terms of what that needs. But um, I definitely think it's going to be a major growth for us and we're going to get more and more involved over the years. We'll handle it. Um, but it's, it's a, uh, it's an exciting thing. So my crystal ball is uh, give us till 2026 and see what we can do if we can knock that out of the park or not. But I think we will. 
see how that happens, Doc. That was like a public cry for help right there. And if, <laughs> and if, if I don't respond accordingly, like people can point to this and say, we heard him say it. We heard him say it. Uh, no, I hear you, Matt. We hope uh, we hope that, uh, that, that there'll be growth there. And that's a good thing. If we're going to grow as an organization, we want to grow according to what the need is. And if the need is there, then we need to grow to meet it. So I appreciate you saying that, Matt. So let's go ahead and close with this. Matt, where can people find you, first of all, to ask questions about something they may have heard today about our forestry initiatives? And then also, you're also quite good and prolific on social media. So where can people find you? Easiest way to, to find me is an email. It's just matt at deerassociation.com. So that, that's uh, very easy, M-A-T-T, two Ts. Um, and I'm, I'm on Instagram. I'm not really on the other uh, channels. And it's Matt Ross underscore NDA. And uh, always a pleasure to talk to somebody that has questions about deer hunting, land management, or anything. If you want to get involved, uh, reach out. I'd love to have a conversation with you. All right, Matt. Well, we know you're busy. We want to get you back into the forest, but thank you for taking the time to be on the Coffee and Deer Show today. Appreciate it, guys. Always a pleasure hanging out with you guys in person or virtually. Well, Mike, that was very informative. Uh, even though I've known Matt for a long time and I work with him on a daily basis, I learned some things there about him and things he's done here over his career that I didn't know. And he's one of those guys that we have several people here in key positions that have had long tenures with previously QDMA and now NDA. And it's, it's some pretty fascinating stuff. Well, it is. And to hear some of the history on how things grew and, and how someone like Matt worked really hard to get where he is today and be a valued member of your organization is, is always interesting. I like to hear how uh, these little success stories that people have, because I think you can take some information away from that moving forward. Some of the younger people, you know, I'm always looking out for, you know, the people that are going to be filling in our shoes behind us in, and, uh, you know, listen to what Matt said about, you know, working hard and, and looking at opportunities. And sometimes it might come out of being a volunteer initially. So you never know where, you know, volunteering your time towards a quality organization could lead you. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And now Matt has become one of those people who have just, they're just synonymous with this organization. When you think of NDA, Matt Ross is certainly one of the people folks think of. Uh, and so, and I also think you can hear it in his voice. I think he's just as excited today about the work that he does as he was when he first started, uh, which is really cool. And you could really say that about our entire team here at NDA, being excited about what they do. And also just the scale at which we're doing timber management, habitat management, and Matt is leading that work for us. Uh, we, we feel as an organization, and this shows up in our most recent strategic plan, that it's important to lead from a national level on the ground conservation work. And one of the best conservation tools out there, frankly, is a chainsaw. And we're going to be doing quite a bit of that. And we're excited to be working with our partners at the Forest Service to get some trees on the ground. And, you know, Mike, you're obviously a deer hunter, but also someone that's a bird hunter. I mean, forestry work is going to certainly help birds and a whole bunch of other wildlife. Yeah. Uh, something that I'm really passionate about is grouse and, and woodcock and, and making sure that uh, their habitat is available for nesting and food and cover. And, and it's just kind of goes hand in hand because a lot of similar habitat overlap is shared between the species of deer or larger game and, and birds. So yeah, something very, very important to me. Well, I have to say I'm just returning from, I mentioned this at the beginning of the show that I was on a trip and I'm just returning from the North American 
wildlife conservation uh, conference. And this is a, it was nice to do it in person again. This was out in Spokane, Washington. And one of the things that's cool about that conference is not only just seeing people you work with from a lot of different organizations, but the different types of people that, that go there. So you have people there that are studying everything from butterflies to birds. And we were talking about timber stand improvement and forestry here. It's something that's important to everybody that's at that conference. And so uh, other than being a little bit jet lagged from getting home at about 1.30 in the morning, <laughs> uh, right before the weekend, yeah, that was a good event. And it was nice to see people in person and to interact with other groups that we work with. So for, as an example, a lot of people may not be aware that DNDA works a lot with groups like Pheasants Forever and their habitat improvement projects. The North, the North American Grasslands Act is something we're working on. So deer and birds, they and a lot of other things share similar habitats. Uh, so again, just uh, it was great to be out there. And Mike, we talked about spring. We talked about uh, shed hunting and turkeys a little bit, but you and I darn near went out and listened for turkeys. But I think that is right around the corner as well. Yeah, that's that's up and coming. I mean, we have time. It's one of those things that you and I kind of joke about is that we are getting up there in years and I'm by no stretch of the imagination or do we have one foot in the grave, but we are much more cognizant of our energy expenditure and our sleep time so that we actually have the endurance and sustainability to make it through an entire season because we're not that good at turkey hunting. So we're not going to tag out on the first day. So we're just already planning for the long haul. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, it was funny. I was sitting at my table this morning and I noticed that at about 6:30 or so it's starting to get daylight and I'm thinking, well, that's actually not too bad. But then as I, thought a little bit further i'm remembering that where we are anyway turkey season doesn't start till the beginning of may and by that time daylight gets a lot earlier so it is definitely a, a haul and we don't want to burn ourselves out before we're even allowed to, to be hunting uh speaking of energy and expending energy i, I gotta put this out there so i've i got my son his first i'll call it a real bow uh the one he had before this was one that just shot little suction cup arrows to get, get them the idea behind it. But I got them one now that uh, shoots real arrows, even though it's just a little fiberglass bow. So uh, I'm excited to get him out to do a little bit of shooting. Yeah. I can't wait to see those pictures, either that, or we'll have them out at your place and, and watch them run because that's what got it started for me all those years ago. So I'm excited for you. Well, I think patience will be key because he's, he's only five. And I can tell you that his attention span, I could see him shooting five or six arrows and saying, okay, I'm done and go do the next thing. So I have to be patient and, and be okay with that and say, okay, we're not going to stand out here for an hour and shoot. So uh, I think patience is always good advice, right? It is. And also the second thing, it's just like when I'm teaching people pistol or young people are actually engaging in, in pistol shooting or any kind of shooting, but reactive targets are fun too. So, I mean, maybe taking a couple balloons and blowing them up and having them pop balloons or um, knocking tin cans off a box, something that, that has a sound to it and has a, a reaction, something, something reactive is always a good suggestion as well. Yep. Well, I'm going to take that suggestion and I'll, I'll do the best to keep our listeners updated on how, on how that goes. So looking forward to getting that both set up. So well, folks, this has been a very informative show today. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed getting to know Matt Ross a little bit better. That's one of the things we want to do here on the Coffee and Deer Show is give you a chance to get to know some of the great staff here at the NDA and the things that they're working on. Uh, I want to remind you, as I uh, described earlier, we've got the 
the bank's blind sweepstakes. Please jump in on that because we won't be able to talk about it on the next show because it'll be over by then. So this is a quick one, nine days, jump in and buy your chances on that. And finally, if you're not already a member, please consider joining the National Deer Association. We do appreciate it. Uh, $35 if you want to pay the full price or if you want to use the promo code podcast, you can get it for 30 and it's the best $30 you'll ever spend. I promise you that. Thanks again for joining us, folks. Look forward to catching you again next time. Enjoy spring out there. If you're out turkey hunting, good luck to you. National Deer Association, where we are united for deer.